And as you're uh, sitting, I'll go ahead and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. This morning we're going to look at verses 17 through 40, a lengthy portion of God's Word uh, here before us. Psalm 119, verses 17 through 40. And even before we pray for the Lord to illuminate our hearts by His Spirit, let me give you something of an introduction. As last week we began this lengthy psalm in our journey through it, uh, and as we began to expound it, we mentioned that to have real meaning, fulfillment, and joy in life comes from walking in the way of God's Word. We actually noted how remarkably gracious it was uh, for our God to command us to live in a certain way, which He has the right to do as our Creator, but then to also promise us that if we would do this, He will actually bless us now and for eternity. The psalmist in the first two stanzas of this song said, for those who walk according to the law of God, there's a blessedness to be experienced. There's a real satisfaction, a fulfillment that can only be found in habitually, daily walking in the ways of the Lord, seeking to follow Him with our whole heart. Well, it seems as if David in these next three stanzas begin to apply that fact that there's a blessedness to come from walking in the ways of the Lord day by day, moment by moment, that influences the way that we live, especially in certain hard circumstances. Maybe we might say even in the hardest of circumstances, guarding our hearts in the ways and in the Word of God that we talked about last week will influence the way that we live life according to the Word, even in the hardest of circumstances. And so remember, as we talked about last week, each stanza is eight verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so this morning we have before us stanzas Gimel, Dalit, and Hay, the next three stanzas. And if you'll just let your eyes fall there, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a short overview before we read it so that we might understand what we're reading together. In Gimel, verses 17 through 24, the psalmist is going to speak directly to earthly princes. He's going to speak to earthly authorities that stand against and speak against God's law and God's people. And we know something of that, don't we? That even in our beloved country, uh, high-powered, high-influential politicians try to speak against God's people and God's ways. Just this week, we heard politicians call Christians narrow-minded, bigoted, foolish. In fact, this week, we were told as Christians, according to this one politician, that we live in a fairy tale that only produces hate and evil, quote-unquote. Well, David tells us how we ought to respond to these vile attacks from earthly princes in verses 17 through 24. And then in verses 25 through 32, David moves to earthly troubles or earthly afflictions. He doesn't really give us many 
you know, different details beyond just this standard form of affliction, but he wants you to be able to fill in the blank, it seems. To fill in the blank with your affliction, whether it be physical or mental or even spiritual. He's going to tell us how in the deepest of valleys, in the deepest of afflictions in the Christian life, the Word of God is ought, or the Word of God ought to be, is to be, uh, treasured above all else. In fact, he will say, I do not fear death, I fear the Lord. And that's a great place to start in our afflictions. Because then in verses 33 through 40, the fifth stanza, the letter Hey, he'll actually tell us that as we approach the threshold of death, we ought to stand secure in the promises of the Word of God. And so with that being in the forefront of our minds, let us read together verses 17 through 40 of Psalm 119. And let us pray before we do so. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this, your word. We know that you have especially and supernaturally revealed yourself to us by your written word, our Bibles. And so as we come to it, we proclaim that this is the perfect Word of God. It is inerrant. It is full of authority for daily living. And so let us come, Lord, humbly, meekly, ready to receive this Word so that we might be changed by it. Your Word promises us that You will sanctify us by the truth. Your Word is truth. And so use this Word to conform us more into the image of Your Son. Enable us to put to death sin in our life and to pursue Christ's likeness. And if there be anyone here without saving knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus, let this be the day of their salvation. Let the Word go out, pierce the hardest of hearts, so that they might respond only to Thee. We pray that You would give us spiritual ears to hear this Word so that You might do a good work through it. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the ways of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. 
Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm your servant, your promises that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Let me ask you a question. It might seem a little personal, but I don't want you to share out loud. Uh, But I want to know if you've ever experienced a season of life where you felt absolutely helpless. That, That you were in a season of life, you were in a circumstance of life, and you felt completely Helpless. There was absolutely nothing that you could do to turn a situation around. In fact, if you were to be honest with yourself, in this helpless situation, it seemed as if the harder you tried to turn it around on your own, the worse it got. It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? A helpless feeling. I'll tell a little bit of a comical story of, of, a, of, of a situation where I felt helpless a few years ago, I was the, the head coach of our middle school football team at DCS. Some of the youth that are here this morning even played during this specific season that I'm speaking of. And we were young and we were small, uh, but we were on a spell of a few good games. We weren't winning them all, but we were getting better. Things were looking pretty positive. We felt positive Monday and Tuesday at practice. Wednesday, during what we would call walkthrough, we had what we felt like was a good game plan. Thursday was game day. We were stretching. And I'll be honest with you, uh, as a competitive, you know, natured guy, I felt pretty good. I thought, here we go. We might win this football game. Until I saw the, the opponent's bus pull into the parking lot. And then I began to see these mammoths of eighth graders uh, begin to walk off of the bus. And immediately the positivity I felt was quickly gone. These kids that were walking off the opponent's bus were no doubt bigger, faster, and stronger than we were. We lost all confidence. And in that moment, the whole team knew that we were in for a long night. Well, of course, the game starts, and they score four times on four plays. We were not out of the first quarter yet, and we were down 32 to 0. We couldn't move the ball, and we couldn't stop them from moving the ball. It was a helpless situation. And I remember one of those sideline coaches, you know who you are, dads. Uh, the sideline coaches began to yell across the fence, Coach, what are you going to do? And I'll never forget. I looked behind me and I said, I'm going to lose. <laughs> Graciously, the Lord sent a thunderstorm during halftime and we didn't have to finish the game. But nonetheless, when we were losing that bad, you feel helpless. You try to adjust, you try to call different plays, you try to move players around. Nothing works and everything you do just makes it worse. And here David is saying that there are certain circumstances in life where we feel this helplessness when we try to apply the scriptures to these hard circumstances especially within these first or these next three stanzas the third the fourth the fifth stanza 
of this song. And so he actually tells us that we need the Holy Spirit's illuminating our hearts and making application to us so that we might actually hear this word, so that we might actually know how to treasure the word of God in these hardest of circumstances. He tells us that we are to treasure the word of God when wicked rulers uh, overwhelm us. That we are to treasure the Word of God when it seems as if anguish is overwhelming us. We are to find strength and we ought to treasure the Word of God even when we are approaching the threshold of death. And so as even David cries out in this psalm, in verse 18, we ask the Lord to open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things of your law. It's a a helplessness in and of ourselves to make application to us. But as we come, uh, knowing that the Holy Spirit gives the believers ears to hear, we turn our attention first to verses 17 through 24. 17 through 24. This third stanza of this beautiful but lengthy song that the psalmist David writes... He asks for the Lord to deal bountifully for him there in verse 17. Now what's interesting here about the the original text, the Hebrew, is that this idea of deal bountifully is actually one short word, and yet it carries a lot of weight. It packs up a big punch because it acknowledges that it is God who must deal bountifully with His servants. We sing a hymn ever so often, Showers of Blessings. And we cry out to the Lord as we sing that song, Showers of Blessings we need. Mercy drops round us are falling unto the showers or for the showers we plead. Right? That is exactly what the psalmist David is doing uh, here in verse 17. He is pleading for the Lord to deal bountifully with him so that he might what? At the end of verse 17, live and keep your word. So here it is that David is asking God for his favor and actually acknowledging that his favor only comes by devoting himself to God. Again, David begins to repeat this theme that exists throughout the whole psalm that to have real life, To live truly and completely is to actually keep the words of God. And he tells us here that life only comes by having an unhindered relationship with God. You notice how he refers to himself here in verse 17. I am your servant. I am submissive under you. In fact, as we scratch at the original language, it actually says, deal bountifully with your slave, knowing that we are slaves to the mercy of Christ alone. And it reminds us that we need to ask ourselves the question, and it seems to be the question that David is asking himself here, especially when we compare it to verse 22, where he asks for the Lord to take away from me scorn and contempt, That there is a need in the human life, first and foremost, to be reconciled to God. For His wrath to be turned away from us. 
And as we confessed our sins together in our bulletin, even as we heard the good news of the gospel from Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12, in our assurance of pardon, we know that it is through the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask ourselves the question, how do we have a right standing with God? It's only through Jesus. We must come in faith to the gospel, believing in the person and work of a Savior who was born of a virgin. Recite the gospel to yourselves. Born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, rose victoriously from the grave, ascended to the heavens. It's to Him that we must repent and believe. It's to Him we must turn away from our old wicked ways and pursue Christ's likeness. It's a living and looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. It's a right standing with God. No condemnation now we dread. There is now peace with God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, one mediator between God and man. And if we'll profess that faith together, we, like David, can call ourselves servants of the Most High God who will deal bountifully with His people as they live unto Him in faith and obedience by keeping the Word. This isn't really a hard picture for us to understand. If you know anything about our catechisms, you'll know that we ask the question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And then the children's catechism that we use, question number two says, or asks, How are we to glorify God? And the answer is always, we glorify God by loving Him and obeying Him. That is what the Gospel proclaims, that we ought to love, we must love and obey God. We must cling to the Gospel, that there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must believe it and proclaim it and live by it. And here's what the psalmist David is is trying to help you to understand in verses 17 through 24. When you believe that, when you proclaim that, and when you live by that, the world will hate you. Here it is that the psalmist declares here very quickly in, in verse 23. He says, take away, in verse 22... Take away from me scorn and contempt, talking about the gospel. Take away your wrath from me. For Christians, he has done so through the Lord Jesus Christ. I have lived for your glory. I have obeyed your commandments. Verse 23. Even though princes sit and plot against me. Even though princes sit plotting against me. Here it is. It's it's almost a picture of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 asks, why do the nations rage? Why do the princes of this world plot in vain? The same kind of imagery is before us here in in Psalm 23. It's their sitting, their session, if you will. They are gathered together and they are plotting against God's people. You know, it's not hard for us to understand this in our day and age. Where evil is called good and good is called evil. Where we are told as Christians that we are full of hate and bigotry and foolishness. How we could be so narrow-minded 
to proclaim that there is only one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to live forever in eternal life is to obey Jesus and walk with Him. And powerful leaders around the world sit and they plot against God and His people. They sit and they plot how they might put an end to the Gospel message. This is just a reality that we sadly live in. And it influences our culture, doesn't it? This world sitting and speaking against our Lord and His ways. It influences our culture. We can see it all around us. Pastor Don brought this up in men's Bible study this past Tuesday morning. I thought it was an excellent point. He says that our society and its leaders are constantly feeding and breeding a sense of entitlement, especially in our younger generations. And now that these younger generations are coming to some sort of influence, they now scream out their wants and demand that you bow a knee to their desires. It's the chaos that's happening in France, isn't it? That we see all over our news. It's a sense of entitlement. And how dare you tell me that there is another way to live? How dare you tell me there is another way to feel and act? All the while, the Lord God Almighty, by His Word, calls us to be meek and humble. To faithfully plod along, work hard to the glory of God, be good citizens in the kingdoms in which He has placed us. And even worse than that, we think of the agendas that are being pushed by even some states in our nations. The surgeries and the ideologies all promoted and defended by the government. I hate to get real specific, but we saw the chaos uh, and the wickedness declared by Governor Newsom in California. As he says that even a young 12-year-old can now decide that they can leave their home eradicate the responsibility and the authority of their parents, put themselves under the authority of the state, all so that they might receive transgender surgeries. We have before us uh, a, you know, national leaders. We have before us a, a sinful world that tries to assume God's role as sovereign creator and and. And in and of itself, they are destroying the biblical family. They are striking out against God's law, and they are trying to quiet God's message. David doesn't know these same circumstances in which we are facing, but he knows what this feels like. How the rulers of the nations plot against him, plot against the nation of Israel, and most importantly and most egregiously, plots against his Lord. And here it is that David tells us in these situations in verse 23 that in these circumstances, these hard circumstances where it seems like the pressures of the nations are are falling upon us, we are to turn to God's Word, these statutes, this way of life. He says, despite the external pressures of society, I find in the law of God my delight and my counsel. Here's what John Calvin says to this verse. He says, To adhere unflinchingly to our purpose when the world takes up an unjust opinion of us, we must constantly meditate on God's law 
That is the Christian's fortitude that cannot be met with. That we ought to turn our attention to the law of God so that we might find a fortitude that cannot be moved is what John Calvin is declaring. Old Puritan W.S. Plummer writes, Although the cruel injustice of men in charging falsely against us grieves and annoys us, yet the pleasurable delight which I take in thy law is a sufficient recompense for it all. He says there's a delight here when we meditate upon the words of God that can help us withstand even the, the, the toughest pressures from the nations. He says in verse 24, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. They are my joy, he is saying. And why can he say such a thing? When the princes of the world are plotting against him, how can he say, my, my delight are your testimonies, my counselors are your law? Because he knows that the promises of the Word tells us that the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He reminds us through texts like Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? That the kingdoms of this world will come and go, but the kingdom of God is quickly approaching and it shall not be shaken. Even as John the Revelator sees the heavens open before him, at the end of our Bibles he says, I see a kingdom whose foundation is not built by man, but a foundation who is, which is built by God that can never be moved. Beloved, kingdoms and nations of this world will come and they will go We pray for revival against the wickedness of our land. We even pray for the Lord's contempt and scorn to be turned away from us because we are a wicked people. And yet, we have to know that we belong to a kingdom that is everlasting. A kingdom that that will come, that there will be no more affliction. And King Jesus will reign forever. And as we even think about this affliction, isn't this the way of Christ? Our Lord was provoked and hated all of His life, wasn't He? From King Herod trying to find Him as an infant to murder Him, to the, you know, the religious establishment of His day, constantly plotting to kill Him, to one of the twelve betraying Him for a slave's price, to the Roman satyrians nailing Him to a tree, Jesus was scorned and afflicted, but He walked in accordance to the will of the Father. And that is our role as well. Despite what might come, we are to walk in the will of the Father. We are to stay the course. We are to plod along. We are to remain faithful, knowing that the same reward of glory and exaltation that was experienced by Christ awaits for us. Verses 25 through 32 is our next stanza. And as we move into Dalit here with this fourth stanza of this song, David begins to talk about the anguish in the Christian life. Specifically, he writes in three states or three circumstances of affliction. He writes about physical affliction, then mental affliction, and then spiritual affliction. In verse 25, he speaks of physical affliction. He says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. We know that a, a 
a consequence, a repercussion of living in this sin-filled world is that we get sick, we experience pain, our bodies break down and grow feeble. You know, many of us have to take medicines. We go through surgeries, big and small, a lot more than we would ever like to admit. And we feel this, don't we? And David says, I feel this deep physical anguish. I'm wrestling with my circumstance that is seemingly beyond relief. It's as if David is saying, my soul clings to the dust. I've laid myself down in the grave just waiting for my, you know, waiting for my last breath to come. That's how worn out my body feels. And yet, our Bibles teach us, the Word of God teaches us, and He says, give me life according to your law. Our Bibles teach us that there will be a day where we are no longer sick and tired. There will be a day that we're no longer painful or weary. There will be a day where our bodies won't continually break down, and there will be a day where there will be no more need for doctors or, or surgeons. The Word of God tells us that this clinging to the dust in verse 25 won't last forever. But this clinging to the dust is nothing, light and momentary, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, compared to the eternal weight of glory that's beyond all imagination. And you might ask the question, does this mean that we don't pray for healing? No, we pray on. Our God is able and He's done it and He will do it again. But even if He doesn't do it right now, ultimate healing is coming. Glorified bodies will one day be ours. Does this mean that we don't go to the doctor? No, we thank the Lord for common graces of medicines and doctors and surgeons. But we look forward to the day where these things are no longer needed. Medicines are temporary. Doctors misdiagnose. Surgeries fail. And won't it be glorious when all of these things are no more? We trust in the promises of God in the midst of our physical affliction, but also in the midst of our mental affliction. Look at verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Many scholars and commentators regard this verse to be repeating verse 25. And I think that there's a lot of general tones that are the same here, but there's a glaring difference. Where in verse 25, David is speaking of dust, physical matter. He is speaking of the heart here in verse 28. He is saying, my heart is heavy. In fact, my heart is fallen or drooped, is what the original Hebrew declares. And so what does he ask for? He asks for strength according to God's Word. And here it is that David, again, doesn't give us any sort of specifics about this mental anguish. It might be anxiety, depression, sorrow. But what we do know is that it's heavy. It's, it, it almost seems unbearable. And yet he says, your word will give me strength. Now this isn't just a, this isn't just a make me stronger according to your word. This is a make me stand, raise me up, establish me. This carries more weight, doesn't it? Establish me by your word. Raise me up by your word. Cause me to stand upon your word. You know, here it is that, that David says that the wrestling match with mental anguish is a, a roller coaster. 
You know, seasons of depression come and go. Anxiety increases and decreases. It's always changing. Sorrow lasts only for a season. And David says, I'm tired of this up and down. I'm tired of this roller coaster of life. I want something firm. I want something sure. I want something steady. I want something that I can be established upon. And he says, that is the Word of God. And then in verse 29, he speaks of an anguish that is spiritual. David discusses here this idea of a false way. Maybe your translation says, put lying far from me. I actually think that's the better translation. Put lying far from me. This lying way. You have to remember that the way David writes of way here, he's talking about a a lifestyle. And so he's he's talking about this, this whole life of sin that is a lie from the beginning to the end. David understands, and we also need to understand, that if we were left to our own devices, if we were left to the power of our flesh, we would pursue earthly desires, and we would constantly jump headfirst into every snare of this world. And so what does David call upon the Lord to do? Graciously teach me your law. He's saying that I need your help. I need you to enable me to obey. And so last week we talked about how gracious God was because He's called us to a way of life and then He promises us that if we live that way, He'll bless us. And this week we're going to talk about how gracious God is that not only would He command for us to live in such a way, but He enables us to live in that way. There's a prayer that St. Augustine prayed. He says, Grant what thou dost command, and command what thou wilt. I'm going to read that again. Grant what thou dost command, and command what thou wilt. He's saying the good news of the gospel is, by the power of the Spirit, and by the authority of the Word, God is enabling you to obey. He's saying, you know, you are God. You command me to live however you want but I also need you to grant what you command. I need you to do a good work in me. I need you to sanctify me by your word and by your spirit. I need you to conform me more into the image of your son. I need you to enable me to put to death sin in my life and to pursue Christ's likeness. And so David's saying it's both. There's an active pursuing Christ. And at the same time, we take heart because God is at work Within us. I had the honor of teaching Sunday school this morning from Philippians 1 6 through 8. The good work that God has started in us, He will bring about to His completion on the day of Jesus Christ. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We get to work in putting to death sin in our life and pursuing Christ's likeness. And at the same time, God enables us, He teaches us how to do it. And then finally, and very quickly, in verses 33 through 40. If you'll just look at verse 33, we can summarize this whole section with this one verse. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it till the end. Here it is that the psalmist David is talking about how to die well. He's talking about this idea of finishing well. He desires to walk wholeheartedly with Jesus. 
He desires to be faithful, and He desires to be faithful to Christ until He sees Christ in all of His glory. And so He says, I need this divine God to help me through this pilgrim journey until the very end. And my mind goes to 2 Timothy, I think it's chapter 4, where Paul is writing to his beloved disciple, and he says that I am being, how does he put it? I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The end of my life has come, and I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have refused to give up. And so he says, therefore, a crown of glory, a crown of righteousness has been laid out before me where my judge will award me on the last day. And not only me, but all those who have loved his appearing. And you think about it. How does Paul look upon death in this way? He's about to be murdered for his faith. He's refused to stop proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And yet he looks upon death as as a joy. How could this be? And he says, it's only because I know what the Gospel has proclaimed to me in the Word of God. That for me, there is a reward, a crown of glory, a crown of righteousness that God Himself will give me because I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I refused to quit. And that's what... David's point here is that he has a desire, a real desire to live a life until the end that is pleasing to the Lord. And the reward for a life that is pleasing to the Lord is a crown of righteousness. And Paul looks upon the threshold of death and he says, you know what, it doesn't scare me. There's not a sting in death for the believer, but there is a crown of righteousness that awaits I remember hearing at a funeral of a beloved saint, death is not to be feared, but it is just a vehicle to get us from this life until the next. From the presence of our loved ones to the present of our beloved. And beloved, we need to have that same mindset. We need to know what it means to live a life according to the Word. We need to know what it means to to pilgrim well, to walk with Christ faithfully to hear the Word of God and to obey it. And thankfully, our Lord has given us all that we need to live well and to die well. He has given us His Word that is a foundation that is sure. In the midst of sinful, oppressing rulers, in the midst of circumstances that cause us anguish, in the midst of even the great last enemy death, we have a foundation that is secure in the Word of God. And we'll actually sing a hymn, and you can go ahead and start turning there in verse, or on page 94. How firm a foundation. We're going to sing verse 1, 2, 3, and 5, but I want you to listen to what we're about to sing. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said, To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with you. O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. 
When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned to repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this, your word. And we pray, O Lord, that we would be encouraged to walk faithfully even until the end. As external and internal pressures seem to try to cause us to stray, let us call out to you and say, would you teach me your statutes? Would you deal bountifully with me? Will you make me alive so that I might keep your word? Father, let us be a people who will run the race well. Let us be a people who will keep the faith. Let us be a people whose eyes are focused upon the crown of righteousness that awaits us as we leave this world and go into the next. And we pray, O Lord, that this word would convict where it needs to convict, encourage where it needs to encourage, so that we might be sanctified this your day as we pursue Christ together. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.